you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they've become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Thank you for joining me today. You know, last week I had this, we we were talking about a lot of moments with uh, legendary drummer Willie Wilcox about his days with Daryl Hall and John Oates and Todd Rundgren. And the hour just totally got away. I mean, I've done several dozen of these shows and I have to say that one flew by, I think, faster than almost any of them. And so it only seemed natural to bring Willie back and just keep the discussion going because we got great feedback on it. Willie's a terrific storyteller, has certainly got a lot of moments in his life. Willie, thanks for joining me again, man. And I feel like we just had to do this. Yeah, Chris, it's great to, to be back again. Awesome. I, I mean, you, you had mentioned like you, last week, the subject came up of all the great stuff you've got stocked away in your garage, your old um, live Todd Rundgren Utopia tapes, your Hall & Oates like demo on the road tapes. And maybe we'll get in and kind of do a From Willie's Garage series, right? Yeah, just, I have to dig into the, the boxes and start going through the, the tapes and trying to organize what's in there. I really think there's going to be a point think projects like that, that become like almost like shoebox exercises, the way people would find old photos and shoeboxes. I think there's going to be a digital music side to that where people like you who were involved in so many interesting things that collected and, and stocked stuff away that you're going to find this treasure and get it digitized. And all of a sudden that's going to be a big part of new music is the old stuff that nobody ever got to hear, you know? And I think that's, what's exciting about, you know, people that have a little bit of extra time on their hands now again people like you that have access to that stuff who knows what it's going to produce in terms of you know box sets or kind of other interesting uh sonic treasures down the line yeah well as as well as there being uh you know representations of performances there's kind of a lot of behind the scenes activity in there as well so they're you know jam sessions and and off the cuff you know performances that that are really kind of unique and interesting. No, I think it'll be fun. And I can't wait to, for us to be in your garage there, just unpacking stuff. I know we'll find some cool stuff. You know, Willie, one thing we didn't get to last week, we, we touched upon it a little bit, is that when you're in Utopia, starts in 1975. And of course, at that point, Todd Rundgren uh, is also a, uh, sought after producer. So from time to time, when he would bring in production projects, you and in some cases, the other guys in the band would wind up playing on those projects. I think the first time that happened, once you joined the band was with Steve Hillage. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, Steve did his album uh, with Todd up in uh, Woodstock and the record was called L. Uh-huh. And so Steve came over with his wife, Maquette, and uh, played all the material that you know he had run down for his album. And then we started rehearsing up in Todd's uh, studio to make that record. I think it's the first time the four of you guys, the four of you being you, Todd, Kazem Sultan, and Roger Powell, are probably on record, right? I mean, together as a four-piece is probably, a, I think that's before the Raw record, right? Yeah, I think that was just before Raw. 
And so that, that's, you know, starts off this pattern where again, where Todd brings somebody in, we talked a little bit about meatloaf last week, how you got recruited uh, to drum on some of those sessions, you know, little, little knowing that it would become one of the most uh, successful records in music history. Uh, but there were some other bands along the way, right? I mean, who do you remember Todd producing where you would get recruited? I remember the Sean Cassidy record. We Utopia did. also functioned as sort of the band on that record, right? We did the Wasp record, but getting back to the Steve Hillage, there's a funny story about that record. Uh-huh. And in Todd's studio where we recorded, it was basically a guest house that was down from the main house. And so we, we would walk down uh, from Todd's house to down the hill to this studio. And it was kind of a wooden, you know, guest house. Uh, had kind of hippie carpeting in there, a grand piano. And when you walked into the studio, you kind of walked into this uh, entryway, but it was covered like with this big box uh, situation. And and up, going up the side of that box was a ladder, a wooden ladder. And up at the top of the box, above the door, about an eight foot by eight foot rectangle now picture that was this entryway that when you came in the door, was an actual platform eight, about eight by eight and with the wooden stairs going up. And we put the drum kit up there. So I recorded <laughs> the whole Steve Hillage album <laughs> with the drums, you know, about 10 feet up in the air because it was a, a vaulted ceiling in this studio. And so, you know, and just can imagine having to listen to the take. So we'd get done a take and go to the studio. I'd have to go climb down the staircase of the side of this thing, which was more like a ladder. It wasn't a staircase. And then go down that ladder. And then the control room for this studio where we did all the Utopia records and all the extra projects was up another set of stairs. And it was a tiny little room where Todd had the control room and he had a, a mixing console set up there above the mixing console. In those days, everything was analog recording. So he had a 24 track uh, tape recorder in the corner and then he had the mixing console. And above the mixing console, he had all these equalizers. So instead of having a mixing console that had all the equalizers built into the console, they were all hanging from chains <laughs> in this kind of you know angle above the console. And he would reach up and make all the EQs and everything. And he could reach over and grab the tape machine. And so we did all the Utopia background vocals there in this tiny little space. There was a bed there as well. So you can imagine there was just barely enough room for the, the four of us to get in there. You know, it's interesting because when people listen to those Utopia records and, and other productions of Todd, they have these very majestic grand sound in, in general, I think. It was sort of a hallmark of a lot of Todd's productions. And I think one imagines them, at least I do, being produced in some sort of large, lavish, futuristic space, but it's not. It's a little wooden structure that you say, it sounds like you're rubbing elbows with each other, and yet somehow you manage to produce these records that just sound you know, so incredibly large in this tiny little space. Yeah, it really belies the, the, the space of where it was made because it was, you know, a very small space, very small <laughs> and intimate, uh, which in a certain way was kind of cool because, you know, it, it just gave you this intimacy when you were recording and being with each other that allowed the, you know, kind of the people to connect. Whereas when you're in cavernous big studios, they're just kind of overwhelming. 
Well, you guys pretty much recorded everything there, right? I know that when you first joined the band in 75, if I'm not mistaken, when Todd was getting his solo record called Faithful Together, you guys recorded that on the road. You and John Siegel and Roger Powell as the band were recording in a variety of studios on tour, if I'm not, if, if I'm right about that, right? Yeah, you're right. That, that record was mostly recorded uh, on the road. But then with you, with the four piece with you and Roger and Chasm and Todd, pretty much everything you do is in that tiny little cabin, right? Yep. Everything was done there. The things that I can remember that were not done there, uh, which were utopia related would be um, from, uh, uh, let's see, what do we do? Uh, the um, trying to think of the, which there was two tracks from the raw record that we did in there. Mm-hmm. And, oh, uh, oh, Singering in the Glass Guitar was done there. And, and that was done at Bearsville Studios. Which was nearby. Which was, near, well, yeah, basically. I mean, that was in the town of Woodstock. And Bearsville was a, a famous recording studio. It was a pretty big cavernous room. A mm-hmm. great sounding room, by the way. And so we did a couple tracks off of Raw there. But that was pretty much the only records that, that we made there, and, as, and except for Meatloaf. We did the Bad Out of Hell record there, too. Willie, for people that aren't familiar, typically with Utopia Records, as the band you know wore on, um, songwriting credits and everything were sort of divvied up. There would be sort of one blanket credit, like songs by Utopia. But for people who don't know, what were some of the songs that you were, were more than partially responsible for? Maybe original melodies or, or things that you worked on. Can you kind of take us inside that process and sort of what you brought to certain songs that Utopia fans might be familiar with? Sure. So um, the uh, I was always kind of enamored with Todd Rundgren ballads because when I was growing up, you know, I, I he had come up before I had, and I listened to him, a lot of his work. And I loved the commercial and harmonic and melodic aspects of his ballads that he had written. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the ballads that people thought that were just written by Todd were written by the both of us. And so that would have been a song called Mated. Um, and then I did a song called Crazy Lady Blue, which I wrote most of the song, including lyrics, but Todd finished up the lyrics. And so that was another ballad that uh, uh, that I worked on with Todd as well. Was there another one? Did, did you work on a song called Only Human? Yes, I did the, all the music for Only Human as well. Well, so you really were sort of inspired by the those grand ballads, those real sort of, you know, touching, emotional, soulful ballads that he did. That that really kind of inspired you from a writing standpoint. Yeah, well, I love the, the melodic aspects of those things, number one. Number two, those were things that were very unique to him and that he did very well and that he didn't always want to do or didn't always do. And so I always tried to make a point of writing those kinds of songs so that it would give him a vehicle to kind of do those ballads that he did so well that people really liked. Do you think he stayed away from those naturally because of his aversion to sort of more commercial expectations, not wanting to always be the hello, it's me guy or the, I saw the light guy. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think that he felt that, you know, he didn't want to always, you know, try to make commercial music uh, on purpose. 
Well, how does that affect Utopia, do you think? Because Utopia, to me, occupies a really interesting niche in rock and roll in the late 70s and early 80s because you had a very devoted following. You know, there were times in the, in the band's career where, you know, you could sell out an arena like the Spectrum, Nassau Coliseum, and do some really big touring. But it would sort of, you know, then become either interrupted by a Todd Solo record or, you know, coming off of what was considered, I think, a fairly commercial success of an album called Adventures in Utopia, the, the immediate follow-up to that is sort of a, a Beatles um, a parody of sorts called To Face the Music. You know, where, where the commercial arc of the band, to me, it never seemed like it was hitting where it could have been, where you looked at bands like then, like like Boston and The Cars, other sort of progressively-minded pop bands that were consistently sticking to a certain kind of formula, for want of a better word. But, but you guys didn't do that. No, we, we would what we wanted to do it but we really as a band didn't end up doing it and you know crybaby was one of the songs that we had done which would have been a nod to boston pretty much you know and yeah. and we always had the potential to be very commercial however everybody um had different artistic contributions and also the fact that uh todd could do his solo career and then also do utopia wasn't economically dependable on one situation where most bands have one income source, right? And so that income source is their band and they're trying to reach as many people as they can with their music. And they're also trying to run a business and, and be successful in the music business because it is a business, even though mm-hmm. you know it's driven by creativity and, and, and the freedom of expression, it is a business. And so um, it, I think in a lot of ways, it certainly hurt Utopia's commercial success as a business um it attracted a lot a lot of people and a specific kind of fan because we were always doing something different so it wasn't the run of the mill you know release of of music that was just cookie cutter and which was interesting and i think interested a lot of people especially musicians i think in a way we were much more of a musicians band yeah than we were a band of the public because the musicians, you know, appreciated that ability to, you know, make different records every time out and not really worry about the commercial aspects. But at the end of the day, as a business, it, it I think it uh, made it more difficult for Utopia. Well, are there, speaking of moments, are there certain shows you guys toured so much on, on a really regular basis, almost every year, um, are there certain shows that stand out? Because again, when you look at the the catalog of live performances, uh, you played Nebworth the Nebworth Festival in London twice, and uh, in 1976 and 1979. Right, and uh, those were big shows playing with the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin. Do those stand out? Are there other shows that stand out? I mean, what is it like when you when you look back at the at the performance schedule? Well, for me, for the standout show, um, for me, for a number of reasons would have been the Nebworth 1979 with Led Zeppelin. You know, there's about two, first of all, there's about 250,000 people there, right? So that's right. A, a fairly large crowd to, to come to a show. Um, secondly, we were playing with Zeppelin. We met, Cass and I were backstage, you know, for the different acts that were going on and McCartney was back there and we were talking to Paul and wow, it just was, um, you know, a, uh, oh, I'll tell a funny, I have a little funny story about that. So we're backstage, uh, you know, watching the bands and McCartney standing back there with us and Paul wanted a drink. And so Cass 
was a huge Paul McCartney fan. And Cass said, I'll go get it for you. And so Cass runs off and I'm standing there waiting with Paul and, and Cass comes back with a drink and he, Cass got him the wrong drink. And Paul says, Will, you can keep that one for yourself. <laughs> Cass was like shattered. You get, you get one chance to do that, right? You get you one drink. chance to do it. And he says, you can keep that one for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Willie, did you did you like being on the road? I mean, for, again, you guys did some big touring. You had the raw the raw tour, which involved you know tons of production. We talked a little bit about that last week. The Adventures in Utopia tour, which again incorporated a lot of video and a lot of set changes and things like that. Um, did w- w- did you like being part of those productions? Were, were were those sort of the best moments for you and the band? The larger productions, yeah. Um. I don't know if they were the best moments. I mean, they were interesting. You know, they 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 provided kind of unique environments for us to do our music. Um, the, the most fun for me for productions and playing were the more intimate settings where we would just play a club and it was just like the four-piece band and you just had your your gear set up and you're just playing music. You know, for me, that was the most enjoyable and intimate and, and intense you know, creative experiences. When we got into extravaganzas and we had the pyramid and raw, um, it was exciting from the spectacle perspective, but it wasn't as exciting and and dynamic from an artistic and creative personal perspective. you know, experience. Yeah. Well, again, you, you, you played the whole gamut from small theaters to mid-sized theaters, to clubs, to arenas, to stadiums. I mean, in your span and your 10 or so years with Todd Rundgren and Utopia, you really got to sort of, you know, bite every apple as it were, as a performer and as, as a recorded, you know, recording musician, I, I think, you know, stemming yeah. lo- lots of different projects and lots of different venues. I don't think what the fans understand is that for instance, when you're playing, when you're when you did the Nebworth Festival and there's 250,000 people, I think the stage itself was two or three stories high, you know, away from the people. And I can distinctly remember being on the drum platform, and that stage was so big that Todd and Cass and Roger, I felt like I was in my living room playing my drums by myself, huh. because because you were so far away from the other band members, and it just seemed so disconnected and then you see 250,000 people out in the audience that look like a painting <laughs> you know um i can distinctly remember also playing that show cuz my son was born actually um the day of that show i had to actually leave i wasn't even uh present when the band was there i had to fly there and arrive early in the morning and make that show and play the show and we had Todd announced that my you know Willie just had a baby boy and the crowd went crazy. It was, wow. it was an incredible experience, but the, the, the magnitude of, of being on a stage like that and so separated just seems so surreal. And, and, and it actually makes it feel hard to play because you don't, you feel like you're by yourself. Right. Right. Well, as the band goes on, you do, you do one final tour, 1985 uh, touring with the tubes and, um, you know, it's a you had an album out called POV at that point. I think is one of your one of your best records, honestly. But that's sort of the end of the band. I mean, things sort of end in a way that's. Uh, I mean, the business is changing. Obviously, it's it's harder uh, to take a band out and tour, and, and and things stop at that point. But there was also a point where you were you were you had your own thoughts and ideas about where where to steer the productions and where to take the band, right? 
Well, yeah, and that would have been most evident on POV because that was the first record where I would have gotten uh, equal production credit with Todd on the record, which never had happened in the past in, I think, in any of any of his experiences. But certainly, I think, should have happened a long time ago with all the members that were in the band, simply because everybody um, was a, a participant in the process, even though the production process... Um, the production process isn't specific. It's, you know, everyone's contribution. They're, every keyboard line, every drum part, every vocal part, you know, all those contributions contribute to what a production is. And so, but on right. that on that record, um, I actually got involved. I, I brought our uh, drum engineer in John Holbrook and I cut a lot of the drum parts myself for those because I had a specific idea about the kind of sound that I wanted because in the past, Todd had always engineered. And I don't know if people understand, but engineers have a big part of how records end up, end up sounding because they can shape the sound of any guitar or drums or voices. And, they ha and it has a big contribution to the DNA of what a record ends up being like, regardless of how it gets mixed, you know, the, the, the main organic sounds that get captured in the, in the style in which they get captured really give the, the record and the performances a strong personality. And at, at that point, I really had strong ideas about what I wanted the drum sound to be like. And I also had contributed a lot of the writing to that record, again, uh, because I had a lot of ideas at that time. And then number two, as you mentioned, music was really starting to change at that time period and synthesizers and, you know, and, and especially in pop music were becoming very prevalent as were drum machines. Now I understand that um, it, the super importance of playing live and how a live musician emanates their personalities and their souls and their playing. And I think that's tremendously important. However, at that time of music, um, the synthesizers and electronic drum machines started to play an important part in the character of the sounds of records that were being made. And people had been playing live for years, but nobody had been making records with drum machines and synthesizers and sequencers. So that was a natural evolution to the musical, you know, palette for, for artists to, to express themselves. And I happened to really gravitate toward that, number one. Number two, as a drummer, as I had mentioned in the first interview, um, when you're participating in a live writing situation, the drummer never gets to contribute harmonically and make up parts and things because you're sitting behind the drum set. So having the ability to have a drum machine and sequencer and keyboards at home allowed me to do a lot of the writing and arranging of the tracks that I couldn't do just sitting behind the drum set. So that was all a perfect storm for me to contribute on that record POV. Willie, um, after you leave the band, I mean, for people that don't know, a couple of years ago, you did all get back together. Was it a chance with the Utopia reunion a couple of years ago? Was it a chance to sort of mend fences a little bit? Because I know there were some tensions at the end with you and Todd. And, and how was it for you getting back on the road with, with at least Chasm and Todd from that band? Uh, Roger Powell couldn't do it. Ralph Shuckett couldn't do it in the end. And there was a marvelous new keyboard player, um, Gil, who you can talk about as well on that tour. Uh, but what was it like for you to get back with Todd and get back on the road a couple of years ago? Well, it was great. I I I loved playing number one, and you know, playing and and being an artist and and a drummer specifically is 
is just part of my DNA. It's my soul. It's what I grew up doing and living and eating and sleeping. And it, it had been and was always my entire life and what, where I felt most comfortable. And so um, getting ready for that tour and, and, and getting prepared for the tour was super exciting. Um, I know I had to do a lot of preparation because being a drummer is very physical. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I had to do a lot of practicing and, and getting in shape so that I would have the stamina to play, especially because Utopia plays like a two and a half hour show. It's not like, and, and the music that Utopia played, especially th- this particular concert was kind of broken up in two segments. It was our progressive rock first set, which had a lot of our odd time signatures. And it was, it's very kind of challenging music to play. It's mm-hmm. not just playing pop songs. And then the second half of the set was pretty much populated with our pop songs. And so um, it's a long show to play. And we're also singing on all the songs as well, whether it's lead or background vocals. So you have the singing aspects that you have to be in shape for. You have the playing aspects that you have to get in shape for. Um, It was great to be back with the guys again. Um, We all got along well um, for the most part. I think we did a great job at getting along. And um, (laughs) we're more mature at this point. Uh, it was um, great to be in front of the fans again and to tour. Uh, we did our live record uh, called Live at the Chicago Theater, which is a four-set DVD that got shot uh, in one take in uh, Chicago. Of mm-hmm. course, the Chicago Theater was a beautiful theater. Um, we had Gil Asias, who calls himself Glasses, who sat in uh, because uh, Roger was unable to do it. Ralph Shuckett was unable to do it. And Gil learned all the material like in a week. And then we had our rehearsals for two or three weeks up in Woodstock and he did a fabulous job. He's a great player. He was really something. I, I have to tell you, I think that tour, I think both you and he brought a lot of amazingly fresh energy um, to that tour, you know, to see him up there, a young guy who was just so masterful, you know, and, and just brought great youthful energy to it. But I think fans were also thrilled to see you back in the fold. Um, Chasm tours with Todd a lot. So they're sort of used to that pairing and seeing it, but having you back on stage, I, I think meant a lot to people. And again, the addition of, of Gill was was a really nice, uh, refreshing um, piece of the show as well. So it, I think that's why a lot of people liked it so much. Do you see it going on any any further than it did after two years ago? Well, I guess it could. You know, it, I think it really just depends on um, the management setting up that window of opportunity for us um, and having everybody's schedule, you know, coinciding so that we could do it again. I know the fans would like to see it, and I know that it was – successful from a business perspective because Live Nation and Sirius Satellite Radio had promoted the shows. Of course, right now we're in a devastating time period with the uh, COVID virus. So uh, live touring is all but stopped. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's always the possibility in the future if everything, you know, realigns again, I I would certainly do it. What about making, what about making studio music together? Um, I think that's always possible too. I, I, I would rather, to be honest, at this point, make some studio music as well, because I, I think the fans would like to hear what it would sound like for Utopia uh, as, as a writing unit to put together music uh, with our current interpretation of everything that's kind of transpired, you know, in the music industry since the last time we made a record. Um, I think our last record would have been 
actually our live show that we recorded in Japan in what was it, 92 or 93 mm-hmm. called Redux. That was the last time that we actually recorded together. And so um, from a from the perspective of it being exciting for me, I would like to play new material and also see where all our heads are at collectively and, and what we would come up with in terms of, you know, new music for, you know, 2020 and beyond. Willie, when the tour started, you were living in Vegas and working in Vegas, and you had started, I think, about 10 or so years ago. Um, you got involved in the gaming industry there, incorporating music. Why don't you describe for people what it was you started doing then and what you still do today and, and just how you helped elevate that uh, part of the business? Sure. Well, um, I had uh, taken – I was at NBC Universal for five years doing uh, as a senior audio composer and sound designer where I had done – uh, you know, the I Am Sci-Fi TV shows. I did the Mad Money TV show for CNBC. I wrote all the, the theme music for that guy. And then um, CNBC, or NBC had closed down. So I went to Mexico and lived for three years by the ocean, came back to the United States and um, came to Vegas. I, was gonna, I, I actually came to Vegas to launch a, a live streaming company that actually combined live streaming with social media. And uh, I had a couple million dollars raised uh, with a company in uh, Utah to go public. And at the last minute that kind of all fell through. And I was had, a, had rented a home in Las Vegas and I was here. And actually Roger Powell had connected with me because he said, hey, Willie, I know a headhunter that lives in Vegas and they're looking for a composer for a gaming company. And I said, "Wow, oh, cool. So um, I got in touch with this, uh, the headhunter that lives here in Vegas. His name is the Godfather, actually, they call him. Of, of course, in Vegas, he would be called the Godfather. And um, he's a, a very well-known recruiter here. So he uh, introduced me to Bally Technologies at that time. And I went over to Bally and I uh, did an interview, did an interview there and uh, actually got the job as a uh, as a starting gaming composer. So that was my beginning uh, entry into the gaming industry. And what did you do exactly? And what does that mean from a musician's standpoint? Well, f- well, first of all, to define when I say gaming industry, there's, you know, now there's many different ways to, to be a musician in the gaming industry. You can write music for mobile applications. You can write music for online gambling applications, or you can write music for slot machines uh, in a casino. And this particular company, Ballet Technologies, was, well, they actually do everything, but this, the music and the games that I was making were all land-based casino games. And I thought, well, you know, how interesting can that be? Ding, 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 you know, chunk, 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 you won some money. <laughs> and I had really um, not experienced the depth of making music for slot machines until I had gotten there and started listening to what was actually getting done. And so the interesting about thing about uh, slot machine music and in, in the industry is that all the slot machines have different levels of gameplay. And there's a basic level of gameplay where a player first starts playing, and that's where a player spends most of their time. Um, but then when a player transitions, they'll transition to a wheel or a bonus and that's really where all the, the players want to get to because that's where they most of the times can win the most money. So they're always on this chase for doing that. However, um, each one of these zones or game states 
all have their own particular kinds of music and um, reasons for that music. So for instance, when you're playing the bass game music, you don't want to be playing a, a piece of music that's overwhelming and distracting to the player. You want to play a piece of music that really provides a bed or an environment and a vibe for the player to sit there for long periods of time as they're on a journey, because that's where they're really starting their journey. Then the music transitions to a feature or a wheel or a pick feature. And that transition, you're usually typically doing sound design, which is when you're taking sound effects, um, which might be explosions or whooshes or bells or synthesizer arpeggiations. And you're transitioning using music to get you from one game state to another game state. Um, then you have features. And in the features, it, features are the most like writing music for records um, because the player's typically spending two to three minutes in a feature and the feature is kind of like the big portion of the ride and takes the player, you know, kind of on a journey. Um, now this journey also uh, really depicts what the, the theme or the genre of the game is. So if it's an Asian theme game, the music that you're writing for that game will be have Asian overtones. However, it doesn't mean that it needs to strictly be traditional Asian music and most of the music and the, the productions that I did, I would always take the perspective that whatever the theme was, whether it was a world theme or an Asian theme or a, uh, you know, a, a licensed piece of music, um, the, the, the style that you were writing in was really branding that game. And I would also try to incorporate all the things that I learned from writing pop songs that would get on the billboard charts to applying that to writing the music for for these slot machines and their features. Wow, so, and you did that for, I mean, you're still doing it. So for about 10 years, what were some of the bigger productions you did? I know you were involved with the Michael Jackson game, right? Yeah, so the, the Michael Jackson game, that was an interesting project. Um, w while I was at Bally Technologies, um, one of the first, and I have to kind of digress because the, the story is large, but it's, it's connected to all these things. Um, I noticed that the audio systems um, in, in most of the slot manufacturing companies weren't nearly as sophisticated as what we were used to in pro audio. Um, and the reason being is that A, they're more expensive and B, they're just not an, in an experienced wheelhouse that most of the slot machine manufacturers have. And so um, I started diving into meeting with the hardware development people and bringing in professionals to develop the audio systems because that was an, a very important part of the player experience. I felt that if I was going to write music and to do a Michael Jackson game, it would be tremendously important for the experience to uh, be matched to the level of the artistry. And you really don't want to listen to Michael Jackson coming through tiny little speakers and not get the vibe of that music, especially having been in recording studios and, and used to the best audio in the world by, you know, having the best equipment and amplifiers and speakers and productions. So I started working on the speaker systems um, and I brought in my buddy, Roger Nichols, God rest his soul. Now he's not with us, but he was a Grammy winning engineer and he had done all the Steely Dan records and he was just a well renowned guy. 
I brought him in to help out with the audio system designs, the initial for Bally for the speaker systems. And then we ended up designing some speaker systems and a surround sound chair um, to do the Michael Jackson game so that it would give the uh, player the ability to actually hear this game in surround sound. However, uh, when Bally had made the licensing deal, they only made the licensing deal to get the MP3 tracks of stereo tracks from all the Michael Jackson records that we had gotten license for. Um, the bad part about that is that we were doing it in surround sound and it just doesn't work to play MP3s through all 5.1 surround speakers and just hear all audio coming through all speakers at the same time. It's not a, a true surround sound experience. So what I had done, which was something that was never really done in the slot machine gaming industry before, is that I created um, separate stems by, we had to go back to Sony and get all the individual tracks from Bad Beat It, Billy Jean, Smooth Criminal, um, all the, you know, all the individual tracks, the bass, the drums, the guitars, lead vocals, background vocals, um, keyboard parts, uh, saxes, etc. And then I remixed all those sounds um, for exactly for the slot machine in, in real 5.1 surround. So I put the lead, vo lead vocals in the front cabinet and in the chair, in the background vocals I had coming out behind your head. And then I, we had a, a transducer in the chair, just like drummers have when they play their drum sets in live concerts. Right. And I, we had a transducer in the chair and I was able to feed the vibrations of the bass drum and the snare drum into the seat. So when the grooves were playing, you would feel the, like you were inside the drum set and you would hear all the music in, in true surround sound. The guitar parts were moving back and forth, left and right, the lead guitar sounds going around. And it was a, a complete immersive experience for um, the players. And it allowed me, having the separate tracks allowed me to edit all the music to work perfectly in these scenarios that I described previously, which would be game states, like the base game state transitions and feature music, because I had the ability to edit all this music um, without it sounding like it was edited, uh, which is extremely important, you know, part of this process. And it gave the Michael Jackson game not only a great experience for the players but a new experience that they hadn't heard previously interesting willie um we're going to get back in a second my name is chris said we're talking with the legendary drummer john willie wilcox about his life um in, in hall and oats with todd rundgren and as a game designer in las vegas actually doing the sonic design for all of those uh, and willie i'm assuming these are the, the crazier games that people see not the a regular slot machine but like those fully immersive things where you're basically climbing into a pod right yeah, this is this is yeah more or less a pod, and it, and it's you know for the bigger licensed uh, games. Mm -hmm. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Chris Stepping. This is the moment. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. 
Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at ChrisEpting.com. That's Chris at ChrisEpting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Thank you for joining me back with my guest, Willie Wilcox, today, famed drummer from Daryl Hall and John Oates, Todd Rundgren and Utopia, many other artists and albums and things. Willie's been talking about um, his new life now, not that new, I guess, for the last 10 years or so in Las Vegas, uh, designing um, all the music for really high-end games in Las Vegas. And it's interesting, Willie, how you... You know, you were getting into production back in the 80s, and now you're, you're still able to sort of rely, I guess, on all of those chops that you started working on, you know, 40, even 50 years ago to some degree. You can still make the adjustments in a modern world and, and produce music that's very personal for people, and, and it gives them an emotional connection. Yeah, well, it's exciting. You know, I don't see it very much different than making pop records. You know, mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the same kind of vehicle. You're, you're really you have an end user, you know, which is either the listener or the player. And it's the, the same kind of, you know, process. And uh, again, my love for commercial music and, and being catchy uh, just translates into what I do into the gaming industry. I think it's super important. It gives, um, you know, these games, their own personalities. It helps them uh, stick out from other games. It helps people when they walk away, to remember the games and then all, all the lessons that you learn in music, uh, in the music industry and in the entertainment industry get transferred over, you know, to the gaming industry. A, a couple big important ones uh, would be dynamics in music are super important and having dynamics and gameplay and giving the, taking the players on a journey and a ride uh, is super important. So, you know, that's why, like in these licensed games and in these big artist music titles, all the music is, you hear the music when you're winning the bonuses, but you don't play the music during the, the, the parts where you're trying to win. Right, right, right. Because if you give it away, it's given away. and there's You no have to earn it. <laughs> you have to earn it. But, but, but earn, you're, you're really earning it not only 
you know, from the financial sense, because you're putting money into a game and you're, and you're playing, but it's an entertainment experience and you want to go on a journey and it, you know, what's the, it's like life, you know what, you don't want to give away everything right from the get go. So, you know, that's going back to your days with, with Utopia, you said something here about always having a, a sense of a good pop record and not being afraid of a hook of something sounding or being commercial, something you gravitated toward. What was it like being in Utopia? Because there was always a struggle, right, about whether or not to go that way or to be more experimental and remain on sort of a cult level for a lot of fans. Did you? Was it frustrating for you to want to be pushing in a more pop-oriented direction, which wouldn't have just been, I guess, creatively satisfying, but also more economically satisfying as well, right? Well, sure. I, I, well, for me in particular, myself, I, like you said, love pop music, and um, and I, I didn't view pop music as selling out. And when I say pop music, for me, pop music means writing songs that are that have melodies that are very catchy and connect with your soul. Right. I mean, and and again, who are the masters of doing that? Daryl Hall and John Oates. I mean, that's. You know, when you think of Hall and Oates, they're the masters of writing, you know, three and four minute songs that have har- harmonies and, and chord changes and melodies that you can remember forever. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's very powerful. And I, I don't per- personally see that as a sellout. And um, I think that it it connects with people's souls. And when you're making music, that that's what you're doing. You know, that's the, or at least for me, that's the point of, you know, of, of being a performer is connecting with people and sharing your soul with them and connecting with them and, and giving them, you know, parts of who you are. Uh, but for me, it was certainly frustrating not tapping deep, more deeply into that. And that's another reason why I would write the songs that I wrote to try to, to help push that along. Was there a conscious sort of effort or attitude against going that direction for the band? I mean, that you sensed at any point? Um, I think so. I, I I think Todd felt more like he didn't want to just make it, just have Utopia be a commercial band. Um, uh, but you know, he would have to speak to that himself. I, yeah. I, that's only that's only my my perception of it is that, and I think that he did that the same thing in his. I think he shows that in his career. Um, so I think that it impacted. I think it impacted the business of Utopia for sure. Well, when you when you think of the albums, and again, the albums, I think um, for the most part, really hold up well. There are some some great uh, deep cuts if people want to go deeper on albums. If you break the albums down a bit, are there ones that stood out to you in terms of experiences with the band that were more positive than others? When you can look at that album today and, and just get a good feeling about what it took to make it and how it sounds today. Well, Raw was a a, a very interesting record. It was one of the earlier records and. And it was just, it was really much kind of the end of the kind of prog rock version of what Utopia was because we started going into making more uh, commercial songs, right? More three-minute songs. And Raw had these extended songs. And so it was, Raw was fun to make because it was pretty much the last of the time period. I mean, Another Live was our first record. And that was when I had first joined the band, and that was super prog with yeah. you know seven people in the band and everything. But even even on Raw, when you think of those long extended opuses like a singing in the glass guitar, within that there's elements of real great pop records 
sort of tucked in the 30 minute epic. You know what I mean? It, it isn't like it's one long uh, meandering, you know, Prague excursion. There are some moments in there that are, that feel a lot more commercial that are super catchy and almost feel like little standalone songs on their own. Yeah. And, and th- that was kind of always the juxtaposition of what utopia was, you know, it, it, it had typically, if you were a prog band, you didn't have those elements of popness in there. Right. But, but Utopia did, and to, and to your point, um, the, you know, there's always a lot of uh, thematic pieces that live within that music that could have been taken out and made into their own songs that could have been pop songs. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was one of the reasons why, as a prog band, we were popular because we weren't just technically uh, musical but we, right. were, we were also commercially musical within that structure. And I think that's what gave some of the success to Utopia when it would have been maybe less successful or turned into, you know, a, a strictly hardcore uh, prog band. Right. And I think what happens to me, sort of the, well, the commercial high point, anyhow, I think would be Adventures in Utopia. And I think you also in that record, in terms of presentation, became way more like four distinct characters as it were where visually you all had a different look you know you all sang differently it it all worked together but that album really seemed to kind of set the tone for okay this is a band of very interesting players who have great pop sensibilities who can still go long when it comes to excursions and a song like caravan or something but at the end of the day also have a near for melody and that record really felt like at least the beginning of a blueprint of, of where it could grow um, you know, beyond that. I mean, do you remember recording Adventures in Utopia and thinking, okay, this is, you know, this feels like we're going to get into a groove here and this is what we're going to be for a while. Yeah, I think it, I think as a four-piece band, as evidenced in the name of the record, Adventures in Utopia, would indicate that the, that the four band members were starting to kind of gel as, as a real band. And as you say, develop our individual personalities, both as singers, uh, contributors musically, and developing these individual personalities within the, in the band and, and, and our kind of internal positions are settling into, you know, what really became the breadth of what Utopia was and, and probably should have continued in, you know, as a business model. Yeah, well, there's a, you know, a lot of people look at that sort of, you know, in the same year, essentially, I think Adventures in Utopia comes out at the very end of 1979, like the last week of the year. So you can almost count it as 1980. That same year in the fall of 1980 is when you the, the follow up is the, the Beatle parody thing I mentioned earlier called To Face the Music, which is, you know, a curious choice. Interesting record, lots of fun songs on it, but it was 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 different than an adventures in utopia and that it felt more like an exercise a specific exercise in in satire or something even though the playing is top notch and it's very creative it wasn't i guess the expected follow-up to adventures in utopia but i guess at that point expected or expectations really had very little to do with the band it was almost more about going the opposite way right yeah i think i think what it was the song was i i just want to touch you right it, which I think Todd had written for another a movie, project, right? Movie. And, and, you know, he had written that song and then all of a sudden 
it's like, oh, that's cool. Let's do a whole record like that. And that was kind of our our business sense at that time, which obviously is not a great idea. You know, we're, <laughs> we're kind of like, you know, bunnies in a cage and somebody has a carrot and they go, look, carrot, <laughs> go, run, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, we just kind of abandoned what we had kind of worked the previous years developing, you know, in, into a, a group sound. And we kind of just, you know, went off. Now I'm not saying that the record wasn't fun to make. It was, I wrote a lot of the music on that record. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, number two, I'm a gigantic Beatles fan. We all are. Mm-hmm. And, and it was fu- great fun to make that record. Um, was it the right business move? Absolutely not. Well, and you couldn't obviously predict the tragedy, which happened a couple of months later of John Lennon's assassination, which made any kind of Beatlesque project at that point probably dead in the water. I mean, it was, you know what I mean? The timing of that was, was yeah, obviously. It, it, it wasn't, well, it was, you know, tragic. A, a tragic event that that happened and and you're right it just was very very poor timing for us and so so whatever chance it would have had for succeeding it just wouldn't you know it didn't and from that point i mean again you go on making i think really strong records uh you know with with a variety of successes but but the records always always had a great sound always had um you know very, the strong the songwriting was always strong i don't think any anyone ever felt like utopia ever phoned it in um and you know it became harder to release records with the way record company situations were changing for you guys but you still slugged it out and you still put out about a record a year and again records would still hold up you know so it's uh, i don't know if you ever go back and li- do you ever listen much to the old to the old records the original records no <laughs> never not really not 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 much no I know a lot of artists tend to leave the past back where it lies, but, um, but, but again, it was just such a big part of your life. And, and again, I, I think it's great that you got to come out and re-experience it again. And, uh, you know, hopefully down the line, there'll be some way to, to, to relight that match again. Willie, for you right now, what are the next couple of years look like? Where, where are you at? And what do you, what do you want to do? And what are you involved in right now? Well, I'm still pursuing uh, my career in the gaming industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I guess um, the gaming industry and also, you know, my musical side, which would be touring and and playing and writing. So um, I'm in the process of trying to uh, connect some of the larger gaming industries with the audio branding process, because I think audio branding is a is an important element in the gaming industry and one that the gaming industry could learn to assimilate uh, to become more successful. It, it seems in the gaming industry, in, in slot machines in particular, audio always seems to be the last thing that gets uh, amplified in the process. It, you know, it's very important for the game titles and the game productions. It's important for graphics take a key role in, in software development, etc. But audio always seems to be, you know, the, the last thing that gets developed or amplified in in the marketing campaigns and in the branding of the, the games. And I think there it's an extremely important aspect to the game. And I think there's tremendous, you know, room for development and, you know, just turn the sound off on your next movie and you'll understand what audio does and how audio, you know, brands that experience for people. Mm-hmm. Well, any, any thought ever of doing your own record? Um, 
I've had some thoughts of doing it. I mean, it, these days making records doesn't really make any sense. So for me, I, you know, I've been writing some songs on my own. And when I write these songs, they're just pretty much for me personally, because releasing them doesn't seem, you know, doesn't seem to make much business sense. But at some point, maybe I'll take the, you know, collective group of songs that I'm writing and put them out so people can hear them. Well, listen, I want to thank you for joining me a second week in a row. And I think the next time people hear from us will be once we've gone through your garage and, and sifted through all of the old tapes and uh, outtakes and jam sessions and live shows and all of that that you've got stocked away. There may be some old photos as well. I wish someone had a movie camera back then. I will tell you, uh, some bands would bring cameras on the road. I wish you guys had that. But in, in, the, in the absence of that, we'll have some fun with the treasure that you do have there. Yeah, we'll develop the, the new true garage band. Okay. Willie Wilcox, thank you again for joining me. I'm Chris Septing. This has been The Moment. I'll be back next week. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Septing for another edition every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week. 